This morning, we're continuing in our annual Summer in the Psalm series. Uh, For those who may not know, this is where we look at four or five different psalms of various genres. And our psalm today is Psalm 3. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and get to there. Psalm chapter 3. And this psalm is very unique because in the book of Psalms, it is the first psalm in the book with a title. Uh, It's the first psalm that tells us the circumstances that brought about the psalm, and also the first psalm of lament in the entire Psalter. And so what we do in the summer of Psalms is we're going to read the psalm, I'll preach the psalm, and then after the sermon we will sing the psalm. And so if you got it there in Psalm 3, say, I got it. There we go. Will you read with me um, Psalm 3? If you don't have a Bible, it will be on the screen behind me. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord Sustain me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, and you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. So there are certain dates in history that we will never forget, right? Some are in our own personal history, like our wedding anniversary or maybe the death of a loved one. But there are other dates which we as a nation, which we as a world will never forget. For those who are alive during the time, we can remember where we were on September 11th, 2001. Our ancestors would have been able to say what it was like on December 7th, 1941. Most recently, many of us may never forget the feeling of March 11th, or just the month of March of 2020, as the reality of the coronavirus pandemic began to set in. But another date that will always be remembered is December 14th, 2012, when a 20-year-old gunman shot and killed 26 people, 20 of which were children at Sandy Hook Elementary School. And in the wake of that shooting, an article was printed in the New York Times on Christmas morning entitled, Why God? And the article includes a response from a Catholic priest. And as is par for the course for the internet, everyone disagreed with the article. Um, Hundreds were commenting on their disagreement. And their disagreements were rooted in their view of human life and their view of suffering. And so for some, for some people, they disagreed, they voiced their disagreement because they believed in karma. They believed in this idea that the sins or our suffering in this world now are punishment for sins we committed in a previous life. Others based their disagreement off the Buddhist idea that suffering is merely an illusion and we suffer because we're just too attached to the things of the world. And others disagreed based off their views of Christianity and even pagan thinkers. And what Tim Keller points out in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, is that in the face of suffering, no one turned to the modern, secular, Western view of the world 
for comfort. No one sought comfort in what modern American culture teaches, which is that the purpose of this life is to be happy. That the purpose of the life is to find what makes you happy and do it in this material world is all there is. And the only thing we can do in suffering is try and make the world a better place. No one sought comfort in that, in the midst of great tragedy. The suffering our country experienced in the wake of Sandy Hook revealed our culture's complete inability to comfort us. They had to go outside of their own cultures. Our, our secular nation had to go and look to other religions to find some sort of comfort or hope or meaning in the purpose of suffering and trials. We shouldn't be surprised by this. Paul tells the church in Thessalonica to not weep like others do or like the world does who have no hope. What Paul is saying there is if you are not in Christ, you have no hope. That suffering will absolutely destroy you. But if you are in Christ, we have the hope of eternal life. We have the hope of resurrection. And by the mercy of God, we can have meaning and purpose even in the midst of great pain and sorrow. What we believe to be true about God radically shifts the way we approach suffering. And in God's wisdom and in God's grace, He has given us examples of what this looks like in the book of Psalms. And we see this in Psalm 3. And so I have three points. I'm going to go ahead and give it to you. David's trial, David's faith, and David's prayer. And so first we're going to look at David's trial in verses 1 through 2. And so if you notice, the title of the psalm says, A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. And so if you don't know that story in the Bible, we, there was a point in David's life when he was king over Israel that his own son, Absalom, threatened to take the throne from him. His own son betrayed him and led an army to try to kill David, and David had to flee for his life. And so the first part of his trial is betrayal. He has been betrayed by one of his family members. And as you read the psalm, you, you can see the urgency that David writes from. You can see the overwhelming odds that are stacked against him. I mean, he just repeats the word many. Oh Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. There's an urgency here because people have risen up against him. And they're not just gossiping about him. They're not just slandering him out in the community. They want to kill him. And the people who want to kill him are led by his own son. And for those who know David's story, this would not be a surprise because at one point in David's life, he commits adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. And after it's revealed that she is pregnant, he kills Bathsheba's husband in a battle so that his sin could be covered up. And the prophet Nathan calls David out on this. And the prophet Nathan says that because you have done this, a great evil will come out of your house. And this is that great evil. The great evil is that David's own son would seek to take his life. And now David had fought many enemies. He was a warrior. He had fought and killed the Philistines, the Moabites, and the Syrians. And he could fight them. You know, he can kill them. Those are just nameless, faceless warriors on a battlefield. But his own son? His own son whom he had raised and 
Saul take his first steps and grow, watch him grow into the man he was? Could he really fight against him? The son who has betrayed him? He can handle the Philistines, but the betrayal of a family member is completely different. And David expresses this unique pain in Psalm 55. He says, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. And so no doubt David was overwhelmed by all of this. So no doubt we would be overwhelmed if we were in a situation like this. And while we may not be in such an extreme situation as being on the run from a family member, we've all felt that sting, right? That sting of betrayal by a close friend or family member, right? And we can handle a random insult from a stranger, right? We've all been in Walmart and been insulted by a stranger before. We can handle maybe someone leaving our business or place of employment for another. But a family member seemingly abandoning us, starting a new life with a new family, forgetting about us completely, that's a different pain. But not only do David's foes rise up against him, and not only is this betrayal by a family member, these foes say of David the most horrible thing that could ever be said about a person. They say that God will not save him. Look at verse 2. He says, Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Worse than any punch to the face, worse than any act of robbery or betrayal, is the idea that there is no salvation for us in God. They look at David and say that he is completely hopeless, that he cannot save himself and neither can God. And even if God could save him, he may not even want to. There is no worse fate in the entire created order than having no hope in God. There is no worse of a fate. There is nothing more dreadful than the idea that God will not save us. Charles Spurgeon says of verse 2 in Psalm 3, he says, If all the trials which come from heaven, all the temptations which ascend from hell, and all the crosses which arise from earth, if they could be mixed and pressed together, they would not make a trial so terrible as that which is contained in this verse. It is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. For many who go through suffering, the worst part may not necessarily be the physical pain and it may not even be the heartache that comes with it. Rather, it can be the feeling that God has abandoned them is the worst part of suffering. It can be the feeling and the thoughts that perhaps God has taken His hands off the wheel of our life. That perhaps He has abandoned us at the doors of the hospital or at the bedside of our dying loved one. That God has left us by ourselves to our own despair. And thinking this, thinking that God has abandoned us means we begin to think our suffering and our pain and ultimately our entire lives are completely pointless. We can find ourselves thinking that our lives are just meaningless accidents. Our suffering has happened by chance and that there's no hope. And so not only does David's foes betray him, but they remind him of his past sin. Remember, this is in light of David's adultery with 
Bathsheba. And so perhaps his enemies have that specific sin in mind when they cry out, there is no salvation for him in God. They're throwing his sin in his face, saying your sin is too great for God to save you. God will not save you because of what you have done. And we may hear these voices in our own lives, perhaps. We hear the cries of accusation against us because of our past or because of our worst moments. And perhaps those voices even come from ourselves. Some of us may wrestle with this, just like David, in the midst of physical suffering or hardship. We may begin to wonder as we're faced with our own mortality, as we're faced with the idea that our life is but a breath, that perhaps God, we wonder if God really saved us. Is my sin too great for God to love me? Is it too big and too awful for God to rescue me? This is what David's enemies wanted him to feel. Absolute and utter despair. Not only do they betray him, but they throw his sin in his face and they say, God will not save you. You are completely hopeless. And it is a work of the devil to try and get God-honoring, blood-bought children to doubt God's goodness and to doubt God's love. Because if he can do that, he knows that he can lead us into despair. And that's ultimately what David's enemies wanted. And that feeling of being forgotten by God has left many to absolute destruction, to an absolute wrecking of their lives. And this is what David's enemies wanted. And we know how we would react to a situation like this, right? If we've been betrayed by a family member and they're throwing our sin in our face, we know how we personally would respond in that moment. But how does David respond? And that's point number two, David's faith in verses three through six. We see that his faith and his confidence is rooted in who God is and what God has done. It's not rooted in a situation. It's not rooted in what people say. His confidence is based off who God is and what God has done. He cries out in verse 3, But you, O Lord, despite the fact that many are saying of me, there is no salvation for me in God, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. The character of God and the care He shows for His people varies completely from what David's enemies are saying. The enemies think God too uncaring or not powerful enough to deliver David. And yet David rehearses what he knows to be true of God in the midst of his suffering. That God is his shield, his glory, and the lifter of his head. Now what does it mean when we say that God is a shield? Right? We all know what a shield is. We've all seen pictures of Captain America with his famous shield, right? And so we typically think of a shield as something that covers the front of our body, but the rest of our body is left vulnerable. But notice how David describes God down there in verse 3. He says, you are a shield about me. Some of your translations may say, you are a shield around me. And so like with the shields that we typically think of, let's we'll use Captain America again as an example. If you want to beat Captain America, you just beat him wherever his shield is not covering him, right? Pretty easy. But if the shield is all about you, 
If the shield is around you, like David says, then there is no part of David that is left vulnerable. There is no part of David that is left open to the attacks of the enemy. David is completely protected and covered in God's love. For the God is not just a shield, but He's a shield about us. He is a shield around us. No part of Him is left uncovered or unprotected by God. In the time of David fleeing from Absalom, God was the only defense David had. And yet He was also the only defense David needed. For He was a shield around him. Not only is he David's shield, but he's also David's glory. And to say that God is David's glory is David's way of acknowledging that every good thing he has, his kingship, his victories in battle as a warrior, are all from the hand of God. He has what he has, and he is who he is, not because of who David is, but because of who God is. Because God has blessed him and given every good thing. Every good gift comes from the Father of lights. And David knows this. Not only that, but this comfort and this faith that David exhibits in the midst of suffering is not just something that David musters up on his own strength. As we'll see, this comes from God and from God alone. God is not only his shield and his glory, but he is the one who lifts his head up in the moments of despair. That when all David wants to do is droop down and collapse, God lifts up his head. And so while David's enemies plot and rage like the nations in Psalm 2, David knows that God is the source of every good thing in his life. And David knows that God is a shield, not just in front or behind him, but all around him. And nothing will happen to David that is outside of the will and providence of God. And that nothing can come into David's life past that shield unless God allows it. And David knows that all things that God allows will work for the good of those who love him. For the good of those who love God. David does what the blessed man of Psalm 1 does. He meditates on who God is, even in the midst of suffering. And he knows according to verse 4, that God will answer him. And that God will answer him from his holy hill. That same holy hill that we saw in Psalm 2, where the king is enthroned and ruling over the universe. David is saying, in the midst of my suffering, God is all around me. And he is hearing my cries. The king of the universe, who sits on his holy hill above all the nations that rage, God hears me. And God is with me. And it's easy to think, right, when we read verses like this, that like David never wept, David was never discouraged, David never struggled. It's easy to fall into that when we read verses like this. But if we were to read the story of Absalom's betrayal in 2 Samuel, it tells us that when David was fleeing from his son, he's leaving the city all by himself because not only has his son betrayed him, but some of his friends and closest counselors have abandoned him and taken the side of his son. It says, David fled weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. Now, of course, if your son betrays you and is trying to kill you, you're going to shed a few tears. And the same man who wrote these words is the same man who weeps in 2 Samuel. 
And so what we see here is that in the midst of suffering, that there is a place for mourning. There is a place for weeping. And that weeping is not a sign of a lack of faith. That it is possible to weep at the circumstances that God has providentially allowed, and yet to also say, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. Jesus himself at the grave of Lazarus, knowing he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, weeps before he does it. Weeping in the midst of sorrow is not a sign of a lack of faith. Faith is crying out even amidst the weeping, even as David goes up the mountain barefoot, crying aloud, but you, O Lord, are the lifter of my head. David remembers who God is in the midst of his suffering. But not only that, he remembers what God has done. In verse 5, he says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Now, typically in the Psalms, when people are, when the psalmist is remembering great acts of the Lord, they talk about you know, the parting of the Red Sea, right? The sending of the plagues upon Egypt, the taking of the promised land, these big, mighty acts of God is typically what the psalmist will call us to remember. But here in verse 5, David just remembers him waking up. He remembers him going to sleep and the Lord waking him up. Now, waking up is something every single one of us did this morning, right? If you are here, you woke up this morning. It's something we have done every day of our lives, sometimes multiple times a day, waking up. It's something we do all the time. And for most of us, waking up is a chore, right? The alarm goes off, the kids jump in the bed, and the first thing in your head is, I just want five more minutes, right? That's how we approach waking up. Up. You get throughout the day and you think, man, I just want to go back to sleep. Sometimes that's our first thought in the morning. And in the midst of our busyness, we can forget even what it means to sleep. We take the process of going to sleep and waking up completely for granted. I mean, think about it. You are never so vulnerable as those moments when you are asleep. You are completely helpless. You have no conscious control of your breathing. You have no idea what's going on around you. You have no idea who's outside your house or who's inside the house. You have no idea. You are completely vulnerable unless you wake up. And yet in those moments we do wake up, we turn the alarm on, and we go about our day. But for David, with his God-centered view of life in the midst of great suffering, he understands that the reason he is awake The reason that he is alive is because the hand of the Lord sustained him. He is awake because the Lord woke him up. There were thousands of people that wanted him dead. And David slept completely vulnerable and he woke up. And he knows that it's not because he's a great sleeper. It's not because he found a really great hiding spot and hide and seek and hid from his enemies. It's because the Lord sustained him. It's because God was keeping him safe while he slept. And in this, in this one little moment of God preserving David at his most vulnerable, David sees a picture of a greater deliverance to come. And this tiny little picture of God preserving David when he was at his most vulnerable, 
David sees the time when God will ultimately deliver him from the vulnerability of this life and to the legions of suffering that we will experience. And you can almost hear the opposition, right? As David is expressing his faith. You almost hear people crying out, David, there are thousands of people who want you dead. Your own son wants to kill you. How in the world can you have this type of faith? How in the world can you have this kind of confidence? And it's so simple, and yet it is so difficult for us to do. And it's because David lives by faith. He doesn't live by sight. He doesn't live and judge his state by what he sees around him and what's going on, but he bases it off of the God who he knows is reigning from his holy hill. He sees the army, right? He sees the army coming for him. He knows his son wants him dead, and yet he also sees the Lord of the universe. He experiences the fear that the army brings. He knows and understands the heartache of his son betraying him, Yet because of what he knows to be true of God, he knows that in the end, all will be well. That everything's going to be alright. Because he knows that the Lord will fight for him and deliver him. It must be restated that our view of the purpose of life will radically affect how we handle and approach suffering. If you think of life in the words of William Shakespeare's Macbeth, as a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing, then suffering will absolutely destroy you. You will not be able to do what David does here in Psalm 3. Your suffering will destroy your sense of worth, your sense of comfort, and your security. If all there is to life is immaterial, and everything that happens is a cosmic accident, and then we die and go into a meaningless void of non-existence, then you have no tools to handle the death of a loved one. You have nothing to comfort you in the midst of financial problems, relational issues, or even the day-to-day trials that we go through all the time. But if the Bible is true, and a good and loving God rules over the universe and has saved you through the forgiveness of sins which was paid for by Him, And if it is true that trusting in Christ means we are eternally secure and that hell itself cannot separate us from God, if all that is true, then we can endure suffering. That by the grace of God, He has equipped us that yes, we weep like David, but we can also rejoice. We don't have to give in to despair. We don't endure it as the world does in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 without hope, but we grieve as those with hope. Our faith moves us from living a me-centered life or a money-centered life to a God-centered view of life. And that changes absolutely everything. And so tonight, God willing, you will go to bed. And tomorrow morning, Lord willing, you will wake up. And when you wake up, like David, remind yourself, it is not ultimately your alarm It's not ultimately the neighbor mowing his grass at 7 o'clock in the morning that woke you up. It was because the Lord sustained you. It was because in your most vulnerable moments, God was watching over you. And the psalmist says that God neither slumbers nor sleeps. The one who watches over us, the one who keeps us, never goes to sleep.
in that one act of waking up is a picture of what the Lord will do for us at the end of days. That though we are vulnerable in this life to pain and sickness, heartache and betrayal and a whole host of sufferings, the Lord will sustain all those who trust in Him. The Lord will keep all of those who believe in His Son and have trusted in His sacrifice. He will keep us until the day we see Him face to face. And we can see a picture of that in our sleep and when we wake up. David's in a trial, but in that trial, his faith perseveres. And it is that faith that leads to verses 7 and 8, David's prayer. In verses 7 through 8, we find a prayer of David. And he prays that while in verse 1, his enemies arose against him. In verse 7, he prays that God would arise for him. In verse 2, his enemies say that God will not save him. But in verse 7, David prays that God would do the very thing his enemies said he couldn't or wouldn't. And that's save him, rescue him. And we may find ourselves struck, we find ourselves stunned by the language of verse 7, right? You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked, right? We don't talk like that anymore. Um, And so it can startle us when we see these words in Holy Spirit-inspired Scripture, striking our enemies on the cheek, breaking the teeth of the wicked. That's like something Russell Crowe and Gladiator would say. Why is this in our Bibles? What is David communicating here? And so in the time of David, as it is today, to be struck on the cheek was incredibly humiliating, right? No one wants to be hit in the mouth. That's humiliating. That offends us. It offends our pride. It was an act of great offense to strike someone on the cheek. And so what David is asking here, he is asking that God would humiliate his enemies. That these plans that Absalom and his army have concocted, that God would humiliate and frustrate those plans. That he would not allow those plans to succeed. His enemies had said there was no salvation, so David says, God, save me. Do the thing your enemies said You couldn't do and glorify yourself by frustrating the plans of the wicked. Show that you are the one who reigns over the raging nations. Humiliate those who plot against the Lord. But David doesn't stop there. He says, you break the teeth of the wicked. And so to ask for the teeth of his enemies to be broken is David asking that the plans his enemies have, the murder, the destruction, the humiliation, that those plans would be thwarted, right? David is portraying his enemies as a raging lion with the teeth out ready to strike. And obviously, a lion's bite can't do much if the lion doesn't have any teeth, right? If he doesn't have any teeth, he's really not going to be able to do much against you. So what David is saying is, break the teeth of the wicked. Break the teeth of the roaring lion so that the plans of the wicked against God's people would not come to fruition. He's asking that the plans that his enemies have would not succeed. And don't let this graphic language, don't let this military language stop you from seeing what David is doing in these verses. He is entrusting his trial and problem to the Lord. He's giving it to God. He is casting his cares upon God instead of rushing out and trying to solve it and fix it on his own. Because you see, when we try to get even, 
when we try to get justice and we put justice in our own hands with those who have stabbed us in the back or betrayed us or hurt us, what often happens is we don't get justice, but rather we get vengeance. And what we wind up doing is starting a cycle of acts of hurt and betrayal and vengeance and accusations and pain. But David knows that not only is God his shield, not only is God the lifter of his head, but God is the source and the bringer of perfect justice. You see, in our hands, justice is easily perverted. Justice can easily be abused and turn into vengeance. But in the hands of the Lord, who is the shield of his people, he will bring perfect justice. For the Christian, for the one who fears God, we don't seek vengeance, even in a culture that loves watching people get even. I mean, how many movies do we watch and admittedly enjoy about people getting even, someone getting back at someone that has wronged them? We find entertainment in that. We find a sense of justification and vindication in getting even. And while there are situations that we have to give over to the justice system, many of the day-to-day hurts and trials that we walk through must be entrusted to the Lord. We must give it to God, trusting that He will bring perfect justice. And so we move to verse 8. And this verse summarizes the entire psalm. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. So if you notice, there's a shift here. David was expressing himself with the pronouns I or whatever, but now it's shifted to the whole congregation. So now it goes from being about an individual, now the whole congregation of Israel would join in singing this psalm. And by singing this psalm, by singing this song, they are understanding that what is true for David is true for all of God's people. You see, this is not a psalm glorifying David. This is not a psalm about how to handle suffering well. This is a psalm about glorifying God. And how because of who God is and what God does for us, we can can trust Him and have joy even in the midst of suffering. And that what is true of David and his experience with God is true for all of God's people. That ultimately, one day, God will save us and deliver us from this body of sin and death. No matter what happens or what people say, salvation is ultimately and foundationally a gift from God. And it is He who determines who gets it. And He has determined that all who trust in Him and repent will be saved. Our salvation, hear this, our salvation is not dependent upon the accusations of the people around us. Our salvation is not dependent upon whatever situation we are walking through. Our salvation is dependent upon God's free choice. He has chosen to save all who repent and trust in Him. The claims and the boasts of the wicked would not and would never change the mind of God towards His people. No situation we walk through means that God has changed His mind about us. That He saved us and now He no longer wants us in His kingdom and so He's kicked us out. Salvation is a gift from the Lord. What makes the difference is not the boast of enemies. It's not the reminders of past sins. What makes the difference is the decision of the Lord. And He will save and preserve and keep all of those who trust in Him. 
The end of Romans 8 tells us, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. God's heart towards His people is not changed by our circumstances. And it's not changed by the boast of the wicked. God's salvation towards sinners is secure. And He will preserve all who trust in Him until eternity. We must remember we are not granted a trial-free life. Nowhere in Scripture are we promised that. The Bible tells us that as Christians, we will be open to a whole host of trials and tribulations. Yet even in those trials, even in those tribulations, when the lion does bite, when the plans of the wicked do prosper, we can look forward to the day when God's people will be vindicated when the wicked and their schemes will be exposed and cast aside like chaff at the feet of God's anointed King, Jesus Christ. We don't search anxiously for hope in suffering. For the Christian, our hope is in a greater King. A greater King who was betrayed like David. A greater King who had accusations of sin thrown against him, but unlike David, had committed no sin. Our hope is in a king who was struck on the cheek and did not retaliate. Our hope is in the king, Jesus Christ, who like a lamb before its shearers was silent as he went to the cross, dying for the sins of all who would trust in him. That is the basis of our hope. That is the basis of our joy, even in the midst of suffering. For though a thousand trials and enemies may surround us, though it feels like the pain is never ending, we can cry out and declare that salvation belongs to the Lord. And it is certain and it is secure. And because of Christ's work on the cross, our eternity is secure. And God will keep us until that day. When we find ourselves in trial and sorrow, like many of us may be in this morning, Let us look to who God is and what God has done. And nothing more great than the cross of Christ, where the sin, where the debt for our sin was paid in full. Because of Christ's work on the cross, no death, no trial, no sorrow, nothing you walk through can alter your eternal state. Because you have trusted in the King of Kings. Because you have trusted and believed that salvation is not based on works or anything else, but salvation is from the Lord.